Sonic Statesman.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sonic Talk number 69. Um, Wednesday, the 20th, the 12th of December, recording live, going live on the 13th of December. Uh, we got a full bag today, if that's the right terminology. I'm not sure. I'll start, I'll start, um, with, with you, because you're laughing and making it, making yourself known. With my full so, bag. Mr. Dave Robinson. How the devil are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Editor of Pro Sound News Europe and prosoundnewseurope.com. It is indeed. Yes. How is prosoundnewseurope.com? Um, busy. We're just um, we're having a redesign for 2008. So um, we're putting together the pages in a you know using different fonts and different styles. So it's a bit of a, uh, a learning well kind of a relearning process going on. We're changing some ideas in the magazine and refreshing it. You know, first for the first time in three and a half years, be a new logo and um, like new templates. And so there's there's a lot to do. But of course, we've chosen to do it just before Christmas, which um, yeah. most people would say was rather foolish because uh, you know you want to be out going to parties and having a good time rather than sitting around worrying about uh, what the page layout looks like. But um, there you go. That's uh, one of the things we decided to do. So. Oh well, that's good for you. Well, we've got one of those going as well. Ours is going much quite slowly, but we have got a redesign in, in the pipeline somewhere. I think it's blocked. I think someone flushed something a bit too large down the pipe as well, so there's no room for it to come out, as it were. <laughs> and Mr. Dave Spears, let's stick with the Daves, from uh, g4software.com, um, fine purveyor of the recently released virtual string machine, that's VSM, if you're in the know. How are you, Dave? I'm good, thank you. Uh, well, let's move straight on to Mr. Mark Tinley, because I know, Mark, um, you're, we're having a bit of an experiment this week, because uh, I know your son is awake these days, and sometimes it's hard for you to uh, give us your full attention. So let's get, get you while we can. Hello, Mark Tinley. Hello there. Yeah, I missed some of last week. I, I was darting in and out between living room and, um, and computer room, feeding baby juice and biscuits and things like that. So I missed the thing about 303s, which I probably would have commented on more, actually. Oh, never mind. Everything, but well, I'm sure... I'll, I'll try and keep up with you this week. Well, you know, we understand, but thanks for, uh, thanks for making the effort anyway. And also we've got uh, Mr. Richard Hilton from Connecticut, from Camp, um, well, Camp Rogers, I suppose. In fact, not Rich, I heard Nile Rogers on the, uh, on the radio just yesterday. He was apparently going to see the Led Zeppelin gig. Uh, as I understand it, he was, yes. You're not having a heavy workload today, then, perhaps? Uh, today, I will get some work done and uh, pack to go to Switzerland tomorrow to play a chic show. Ah. Are you, you're mixing the bootleg of the Led Zeppelin concert, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He came back yeah. with his... Uh, what, what kind of personal <laughs> recorder does Mr. Rogers prefer? <laughs> what bit rate does he record at? <laughs> Just joking. So how are you, Rich? Are you well? I'm good, yeah, real good. Good. Glad I watched some uh, some audience videos of the uh, Led Zeppelin show last night on YouTube. Oh, yeah, that was quite very entertaining. Yeah, it was bizarre because the the BBC it seemed to be. I don't know whether it's just a BBC thing, but the BBC uh, it's been blanket coverage all over, and yet anyone would think that it was just a Led Zeppelin gig, but it wasn't actually just a Led Zeppelin gig. It was a gig. Well, it was it was a tribute to Ahmet Erdogan, uh, the former president of Atlantic Records. We actually did one last year at Montreux at the uh, jazz festival not this past summer but the summer before we did a tribute when Ahmet was still with us and uh, Robert Plant came and p- played with us at that show so, ah. um, are we I talking close personal friends uh, we had nice time in the brief time we had together and we played some fun music we played Ray Charles songs Was he, he's attributed with invention of soul music isn't that right I guess I don't know 
I don't know if the answer to that question, but what's the movie? Right, it's very good. Jamie Foxx is unbelievable, and Alma Tedigan is, uh, is 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 in that film. Yeah, it's very good. Cross rhythm and blues with um, gospel. You know, gospel. They have their soul singers, and we have our soul singers. In the immortal words of Derek and Clive. <laughs> well, thank you for making the effort to join us uh, this week. Also, P- uh, PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. Good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, apparently tickets going for what fifteen hundred dollars uh, fifteen hundred pounds what three thousand dollars to for people to get to that what do they reckon it was like two twenty million attempts at buying tickets for the Led Zeppelin gig from two million people in in the space of kind of you know a nanosecond or something one guy paid um eight thousand in an auction a charity auction up in Scotland I think according to uh, one press release I saw and Dave uh, just Dave Spears was telling us before we went on that he got a, an invite for a private boat down to the gig. VIP treatment and didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's almost, no, it's so perverse. I'm not a fan. Not a fan. No, I, I think we. I, no. For those who haven't heard the, the entire, we're on Dave. You could have watched Foreigner. Well, I could have sold my tickets. <laughs> no, you can't. You have to. You get barcoded, don't you, or something? No, but no, um, no doubt, somebody, no doubt, somebody else went in your place who did like them. That's what it's about, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm sure, I couldn't, I'm I couldn't sure. abide all that kind of, you know, record, all these people going, "Hey, yes, I loved them first time round," and it was like, "Well, you weren't even born, guys. Come on." Yeah, I, I must admit, I don't know much about the all. All I remember about them, I know they were great, and you know all that. Or I'm told they are, but all I can remember is uh, squeeze my lemon dry, and you know, just if I hear that one more time, it's just it. Just just sounds very um, wrong to me. And that's all I really know about him. But uh, some brilliant sounds and brilliant playing, but it just wasn't my cup of tea. And D- I know Dave Spears has a real problem with Stairway to Heaven. You can't be in the same room, can you? Uh, no, I was 21 before I heard Stairway to Heaven because that's I refused to listen to it. I was bored senseless of all those people playing it at guitar at school. And it was just like, right, I never, ever want to hear this, ever. It, they interviewed John Lydon, um, Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols, sort of saying, you know, what do you think? Because he was famously, you know, the Sex Pistols and the sort of punk movement was all about kicking against the kind of rock establishment, which Led Zeppelin very much represented at that time. It's interesting, the whole kind of, the, 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 the fact that they're sort of so loved and so remembered fondly. I mean, they're a really massive band, but also at the same time, there's a whole generation of which I, I imagine, Dave, you'll probably fit slot right into that, who they, they actually represent the whole kind of the wrongness of the music industry at the time of punk. It was just the people who liked them. They all smelled of that kind of peculiar oil and stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what put me off, you know. (laughs) It wasn't that corporate thing when it started out. No, of course not. it started out, it was just a a rock band with a bluesy style kind of defining something new that became almost the, the, the seed from which many genres grew i mean they really i I believe they advanced the form and made some really totally concur with that it's just at the time of you know you know because they've been around a long time and they were mega rockers it was seen as very much a sort of the embodiment of the musical establishment at the time you know it's just unlucky for them really they played it up right well maybe so you know the the big star thing and they they worked it like crazy yeah yeah did very and we did very very well with it Absolutely. Well, I've, I've met Robert a couple of times because he sort of hangs around at a studio and he seems like a nice bloke. He's never kind of, I expect him to start screaming or something, you know, because that's all we're used to hearing of him. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't. So it's, hello. <laughs> who's uh, who's their touring drummer? The touring drummer. I know that um, the bloke from Foreigner, who is it? Is it Jason Bonham? Is it John Bonham's son? Yeah, yeah. John Bonham's son, yeah. Isn't that that's quite, that's quite a beautiful thing, really, isn't it? Played great. He's a really good, he's a good player. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah. I've heard. He plays with Foreigner. 
They haven't announced any kind of tour yet, so... Well, they're um, going to, aren't they? they, they they're going to tour. You know, check out uh, Led Zeppelin's Live at the BBC record. If you, if you like, uh, you know, white white man blues, that's one of the better one of the better records out there. Okay. Well, thanks. For, I, I will check it out, because I don't know much of that, about that stuff. And also, find Frank Zappa's version of Stairway to Heaven, where he has the brass section play the guitar solo. And yeah. it's all done in reggae style as well. <laughs> very, very good. <laughs> that sounds apt somehow. Sonic Talk. Sponsored by Yamaha Music Production. Producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles. Accurate professional studio monitoring systems. Incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos. The versatile motif range of music production synthesizers. And the latest N-series digital mixing studios. Featuring the cleanest signal pump and full Cubase AI4 integration. www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Talk. So, uh, what also, uh, well, while we're on the subject of sort of um, establishment and vintage, I suppose, this is a really tenuous link, um, the Liquid Mix Challenge, <laughs> which is on Focusrite at the moment. Um, it's a big Flash um, application you can download. Um, you can download it in the high-res or the low-res version, which kind of seems to me to defeat the, pro- the, beat the object. There's a 2-meg download or a 20-meg download. And you get 10 questions, uh, each with three samples, the first one's dry. The difference between the, the two is one is liquid mix emulation and one is the real thing. You have to Basically, you have to identify which one is the liquid mix out of the two samples and which one you prefer. So who'd like to well, go first? I was just going to say I'll go first because I've got a window of opportunity because I've just had to go and find Lightning McQueen for him. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I tried it and I, uh, I scored 50%, which is little more than chance really, isn't it? And I could definitely hear the difference between the liquid mix and the thing it was emulating. There was a distinct difference. But I didn't really know which one was which, to be honest. I did prefer the sound of one over the other. And then at the end, it told me that I preferred the sound of the liquid mix 60% of the time, but I was 50% right. But what it didn't tell me was which (laughs) emulations I actually liked. I don't know whether I thought that their Avalon was better than a real Avalon or their SSL was better than a real SSL or which way around or what. So it was bloody useless, that test, because it's, <laughs> it's not really telling me, you know... To go and buy one. You go and buy one of these because you like it more than that. It's, yeah. So I gave up in the end. I just, you know... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Maybe there's a sort of part two they'll release. Maybe they could modify. I mean, I think that whole application was written ages ago because they say, uh, you know, it was done with a, a Firewire interface, the Sapphire not being available at the time, which, you know, I mean, that was released months and months and months ago. So they must have made this a very long time ago. I mean, some of the time, I must admit, I preferred the dry signal as well. So Yeah, me too. But it didn't really break, it didn't really break that down and say you preferred you know, no. the, the Avalon over the dry signal every time or whatever. I mean, it just the results weren't comprehensive enough. Dave Robinson. Me. Well, I was going to say, I mean, let's not forget, it's just a marketing exercise to get the liquid mix about and to get people to enter a competition. Well, that's true. <laughs> you know, rather than uh, some kind of... Uh, Golden ears listening test. I think really, you know, they don't want to sell. They don't want to sell vintage SSLs or uh, or um, um, Avalon boxes, do they? But um, it's. I thought it was quite a nice idea. But I tried. I downloaded the uh, the low res version, uh, and on my um, on my Mac, and with any kind of background noise, you know, people moving around in the office, I, I listened to about the third or fourth one, and I thought I can't tell the difference at all. 
But then again, I just think it's going to be as, as you very as you very rightly said, Mark. Just because you uh, just because you identify the liquid the liquid uh, mixes, it doesn't mean that that's the sound you like. So, but you, you're going to go for the sound you you like, and that can't necessarily be the liquid mix all the time. Mm. Unless it's really that good, I mean, the chances of you actually spotting that are, well, you know, you got fifty percent, and that's what most people are going to come away with. It, I thought, not me. <laughs> <laughs> come on, Nick. I got forty percent. I tell And I preferred the sixty. I preferred the liquid mix sixty percent of the time, apparently. But anyway, I, I did find that. Um, well, at least to my ears, anyway, that there were that there were differences. They were quite subtle in a lot of cases. They were, um, and I didn't think they were that heavily processed. I mean, they were, um, you know, like the beats weren't like really smacked at. You know, the, the sort of thing that I would do use those kind of effects for. You know, they were quite tastefully. I felt anyway. Um, so I, I don't think it. You know, if you're really sort of giving them a real hard workout you might well be able to tell the difference a bit more i don't know but uh, i know rich hilton you you thought they were quite heavily processed but i'm not familiar with all of this gear as well to be perfectly honest so i'm not familiar not only am i not familiar with all of that gear although i'm familiar with some of it but i've never been in the same room with a liquid mix so here i am trying to identify something i've never actually used or heard and i'm just trying to and and so the only criteria i could possibly use is do i like it better or worse than I'll have to assume that the original piece of gear, is, since that's what they were going for, is going to sound better than the liquid mix. And so what I would typically do is if it sounded like a bunch of software compression, I would say it was the liquid mix and that I like the other one better. What did- and uh, doing so, I scored 70% of the time. Ah, which, one did I, you, which one did you prefer? I preferred the other stuff. I, I preferred the liquid mix 40% of the time. Okay. So I've heard the other stuff more often, and that's why I say if somebody identified the liquid mix ninety percent of the time and preferred the sound ten percent of the time, do they win one too? It's very confusing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, as we were saying, if 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 the competition winner actually doesn't like the sound of the liquid mix at all, it's not a very good PR exercise because you're not going to get you're not going to get a great quote out of them, are you? Really? So they need people to prefer the most expensive piece of gear in there, and they need to. The prefer the liquid mix sound over the most expensive piece of gear that they emulate, and then they'll sell loads of units. Yeah, everyone will want that sound. Mister right? Mister Spears, how did you fare? We'll leave Page PJ till last because he's got one. Ah, okay, <laughs> yes. Um, I got seventy percent. Um, but I clicked the none when it said, "Do you prefer sound A or B?" So I preferred the liquid mix over the original zero percent of the time. Right. I thought it was quite cool because actually I like the fact that it didn't reveal what was the original and what was not because you know you're constantly seeing it on form. Oh, it's nowhere near as good as the original. Well, <laughs> which was the original? If my son had taken the test, my two-year-old, and he clicked A B all the way through, he would have had as much chance as I did if I scored fifty percent. <laughs> really, I mean, it's not conclusive at all, is it? Fifty percent is the same as chance. It's either A or B. Yeah. yeah, and I have to say, I did guess on a few of them. Yeah, well, like, yeah. well, come on, I have, I've got no experience of half of this gear. I know, but did you did you find that? Um, I mean, I didn't find that there were. I was expecting it to be more different, and I I thought you know my ears would uh, would have been would have done me right, and I've gone. Of course, I recognise that as software, but I was actually wrong most of the time. Yeah, no, I use the same criteria as Rich, really. And PJ, you've got one. How did you do? 
He's got 100% of the time. No, I've got one, and, and I did as well as Dave and Rich. I got, I got a 70% score on being able to identify the liquid mix against the original. Of course, I, I, know, the sound of, I know the sound of the liquid mix roughly. I, I've used several of the emulations in it so far once, um, and a few of them many times. Um, to my ears, they, they all sound a little, a little different. So I was listening for you know, some, the sound that I'm used to hearing when I use it myself. Of course, I don't process um, <laughs> you know, stated guitar parts and cheesy drum loops, but uh, no, I don't want to dig Focusrite's yeah. uh, Focus material. But um, and I guess I pre- I preferred the liquid mix sixty percent of the time. Hmm. So um, it's official. I am t- I am actually bottom of the class. That's good. <laughs> Apart from Dave, who sort of didn't really uh, didn't really give it a chance, but that's probably you opted out. You took the uh, you took the wise move. I should have done that as well, Dave. Then I would have had you know I wouldn't have been able to be uh, compared to everybody else. But I am actually bottom of the class. Thank you. I'd like a gong or something. Gong <laughs> dong. <laughs> but yes, um, focusright.com liquid mix challenge. Uh, go and try it out for yourself. Can I just ask this then? Because I thought the differences were quite subtle. Was it? W- am I totally wrong, or were they glaring? I thought it was oh. quite obvious, actually. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. But I think yeah. that uh, I could hear differences on the leading edge of the sound, like the attack portion of the sound. That's where I could mm-hmm. hear the most difference. That's where I believe the liquid mix shows its stripes is is on the is on the attack portion. I mean, I think that's where you really hear it. So when you when you push some of the compressor emulations really far, you don't get that really smooth pumping attack that yeah, the f- that you get with the with the hardware counterparts. And in software. Can I recommend one? Uh, McDSP's Compressor Bank 4. Did you not mention the ML4000? Did you mention that before? The ML4000 is great on a Master Fader, but, um, but, but for these kinds of attack transients, uh, particularly vocals and things, I, I love the thing. I use it all the time. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the test. And, um, well, it's just a shame that um, I was crap. Pace Eyelock Boycott. Adam, I'm now. If I'm going to be able to pronounce this, Adam Shabtach, does that sound right? Of Audio Damage, a popular plugin developer has fired off a call for boycott of products that use Pace and the iLock hardware dongle. Basically, what he's saying is, what happens if there's a problem with the iLock? There's nothing I can do about it as a developer, and it reflects badly on my product. Would you say that's about the gist of it? Well, I had a look what he's saying, but um, yeah, I met the Pace guys um, when I was over at the um, the Waves. Um, press conference over at um, you know the AES, which we talked about before. Yeah, and um, they were saying about people. Um, they were telling me about you know how it works and, and whatever. But it seemed to me that if there's something wrong with your with your your iLock key, you send it back to Pace and they'll fix it for you. You know, from my experience of, uh, I don't spend a lot of time reading um, forums about about copy protection. Um, because I did enough of that last year. Uh, sorry, earlier in the year around the wave stuff. But um, it seems that uh, there's enough people who are happy with the way it works, and this guy's just having a bit of a moan. Has anyone else had any problems with iLock? I mean, Mark, you probably have, just because it's USB, and you always have something wrong with the USB kind of dongle. I but... have had problems with iLock, yes. Um, but And I don't really like it in general. I don't like the idea of that being the, the way of software protection. But what I do like about it is that you can put all your licenses on it and you can just put it in your pocket and go and use all of your stuff on another machine without having to 
do all of that nonsense to do with um, yeah. challenge response. So I think, I, I don't know, it's sort of, there's pros and cons to it. So Yeah, um, I, I suppose, Rich, you, Rich Hilton, you must have um, a bunch of stuff on iLock, presumably with your um, Pro Tools systems as well. Yeah, I like my iLock. Mm. <laughs> That's with a little I before the like. I love know, I iLock. my iLock. iLock. Um, no, it's uh, for the exact reason Mark just said, because I can take it with me and go work somewhere and use the stuff I'm used to using. All i got to do is download it, and there it is. It works. Um, if there must be copy protection, it seems like an okay solution or the best one that's come along so far. That's exactly, exactly right. And this, this guy, in fact, you know, I read this article, and it's one of these... Oh, I don't like this. I don't like that. And uh, I, you know, there's any any number of people complain about any number of things. It just struck me as one of those kind of whinges. And there are there are probably thousands and thousands and thousands of people who will say, well, actually, iLock is um, is is the way forward. And in this age of of software piracy, um, they're actually coming up with a um, legitimate and a practical solution. So. Um, so give it a chance, Case. Okay, well, PJ, any quick thoughts? Because uh, it sounds like we've we've put this one to bed, really. No, I've never I've never had any problem with my iLock. I've got several pieces of software on it, and it doesn't cause me a bit of uh, trouble. Dave, I can't believe we're doing this. I can't believe we're actually advocating a dongle hardware. This is not good. <laughs> I can't think of anything bad to say about it, but I can't believe that we're doing this. <laughs> Mr. Spears. Uh, I think there was a problem in the early days of Windows stuff, but um, I thought that that had all kind of been overcome. What I find quite interesting is that we're getting asked um, quite a lot now um, if we can make our stuff available for it. Mm-hmm. So people could just take it I'm away. Asking, yeah. I think that's quite an interesting change. This is the sound of me asking you. Mm. <laughs> well, we okay. keep it all. We keep all options open. I mean, you know, I like the fact that we don't have to make users jump through many hoops. But for exactly that, you know, the reasons that Mark stated and that Rich stated, it's quite nice to have it all on one key and to be able to transport it around without worrying about, oh, shit, where did I leave that serial number? And particularly when it comes to buying a new computer. You know, I've got so much stuff with challenge and response and mm. serial numbers and whatnot and whatnot, and, you know, inevitably something gets lost along the way. If you buy too yeah. many computers, mm. you run out of challenges and responses as well, don't you? Mm. I think um, IK Multimedia give you six, don't they? Is it six? I'm not goes sure. Or is it three goes. Three goes. So after, I think. You've, after you've changed computers three times, if you've owned a piece of software for more than a, well, I suppose you're going to change every year and a half, maybe every two years. So if you've owned a piece of software for more than about five years, you've four years, you've had it, haven't you? Ableton gives you two. So if you if you upgrade, if you put it on a laptop and a desktop, and then you upgrade one of your machines, they're really good about. You know, you simply email them, you give them your registration number, and tell them what you want to do, and they they'll email you another license but yeah it it tends to be kind of a pain yeah also things things like license transfers and stuff like that <clears throat> we looked into you know the way uh, it can be transferred via iLock and it actually seems to be really straightforward oh what so you can sell your license to somebody else or transfer yep. it to another iLock so you yep. just you go on the iLock account and just drag and drop things from one key to another key can't you now yeah well that seems Pretty like a much, good idea anyway. doesn't it you can split so if you've got like well, a production that would system be nice. yeah well that makes sense
That's the sound of the new Waldorf Blofeld, which is a little sort of desktop device. Three oscillator, three LFO, uh, twenty-five up to four twenty-five voices, sixteen-part multi-timbral, sturdy metal enclosure, and seven eight stainless steel dials with a graphical display, which is kind of a really sexy kind of white background LED. How much is it? I, try, I couldn't, I could, I couldn't on the... find that, actually, um, which is the one vital piece of information that's missing. Mm. I was rather hoping that uh, Hans Non-Eric was going to be with us, because he's, he's got mates in Waldorf, and he's getting one of the first production models, and he's going to be doing a review of it. And so he'd be able to tell us a bit more about it, because he's actually seen one in the flesh. I like the ad. I like the, uh, the Doctor Evil in the... Um, it's a, it's, 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 they're doing Doctor Evil. It's supposed to be James Bond, but it's, yeah, it's confusing, isn't it? But uh, anyway. Well, it's the Donald Pleasance character, isn't it? You know, it's not James Bond, and it's not Austin Powers. It's a... Uh, Anyway, you see what I mean? Mixed metaphors. Well, maybe that yeah. signifies the hybrid nature of the synthesizer, Dave. Maybe. <laughs> well, perhaps I should have made the synthesizer the same shape as a cat, then. Oh, you could just sort of stroke it. <laughs> well, it's white. It, it's it's white like a cat. A chest top instead of a desktop. <laughs> a, lap, a laptop. A laptop. Hey. But, but, yeah, new Wald- Waldorf are back because, I mean, they kind of made a bit of a splash. Uh, last year at NAMM, um, they had various synthesizers that were uh, sort of on display behind um, sort of glass cases that weren't making any noise apart from the, I can't remember what the name of the piano was, which was lovely looking but tremendously expensive. When you say make a splash, I mean the sort of splash when somebody falls into a pool full of piranhas. Just that sort of splash, actually, Dave. <laughs> As the bottom of the lift drops out. So, uh, Dave Spears, I know you were a big we- uh, Waldorf, you know, you well, at least you, you used the, the Wave and other items. Do you think this is going to be something that you're going to be craving for? I, I really want to know the price, because I thought it sounded great. And I love the uh, cross-mod abilities and all the other stuff that's on there. And I thought the demos were, were really excellent. Okay. So, yeah, price. They say it's a Q and a Wave 2. It's got all of that stuff in it, the wavetable and all this other kind of the things that the, you know, the, the kind of more esoteric uh, Waldorf stuff had. It's all sort of built in under the, that little tiny hood. I believe it's around $700 here in America. Wow, that is cheap. Yeah, yeah. if that comes in at like three ninety nine in the UK, yeah, hey. You're going to get one. I think so. Well, you know, you know, the challenge with it is it's so small. It looked really small. It's kind of like, you know, bigger than a VL tone, but smaller than most synthesizers. And so... It's a $700 little thing. It sounds incredible. I'd love to own one. I think it's totally worth it, but I just think it's a sales challenge because it's not, it doesn't look like a lot of stuff for 700 bucks. But then I guess neither does a box of software. It looks remarkably like a Roland TR505 drum machine. It's right. weird. Right. Yeah. Right. It's oh, got yeah, that yeah, beigeness, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. PJ, are you familiar with any of the kind of Waldorf stuff or is this. Uh... I've never owned a Waldorf synth, but I love the sound of them and it, it sounds fantastic. It sounds great. I'm not going to rush out and buy one, but uh, you know, if uh, if one came my way, if if anybody out there at Waldorf is listening and wants to send me one, I'll gladly play around with. It. <laughs> yeah, me too. And Rich Hill, and uh, basically all of us, we'll all have yes. one. We'll we'll be we yeah. could be your sort of pan global evaluation team. How about that? I want to be able to put my own samples in it. That was the only thing I thought that was interesting about. PPGs that you could, they had that other box, didn't they? Or am I thinking the other thing? Wave term. Oh, that wave term, ugh. You didn't like that? I think well, it, no. was a, it was a bit Just... of a dog, wasn't it? It was very, very, <laughs> very, very expensive and very, very, very temperamental. Hey, yes. but it's the sound of Tangerine Dream, so leave it out. I thought it did some cool things. I, I remember I actually went to the launch of the original Wave synthesizers you know that you remember yeah. the massive synth that came out yeah and it was at mm-hmm. gnomus studios it must have been about 93 94 or something like that 
I hadn't yeah. been to London that many times. I was only a little lad, and you know this, this vast synthesizer was was um, launched for a ridiculous cost. I'm sure it was like six grand or something like that. It was six grand, yeah. Yeah, and like you're thinking, like just nobody is going to buy this because it's just ridiculously expensive. And they were right. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they are a lovely fat sound, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. I know I have a history of uh, of it. Uh, <laughs> pointing you towards gear that doesn't quite do exactly what exactly what you want, but the new Nord synthesizer looks like you can you can load samples into it and use them as wave as wavetables. Oh, does it? Is it a Nord modular? Uh, it's an actually it's a keyboard and it's semi modular, I believe. Oh, I liked my Nord modular. I only had to sell it because I didn't have the money for the rent that particular month, some, many years ago. But um, <laughs> if they've got one that I can put samples in, that sounds pretty... I might have to go and check that out. Thanks for that. Mr. Uh, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen has um, just passed away, a pioneer of electronic music. Um, I'm afraid I don't know that much about it, but um, I'll just play this very, very quickly because uh, this was a piece uh, of his. A bit random. I think you'll agree. He could write some tunes, couldn't he? I think the guy from Music Thing, the blog, uh, Blogspot, made it. Just said the perfect thing, which is, I don't know anything about Stockhausen besides great pioneer, inspired Kraftwerk and Bjork, not good for parties, and made music for four helicopters. Anyone got any good stories? And I just thought, well, that was brutally honest, and it uh, probably represents kind of my the sum of my knowledge about him. Um, I did find uh, uh, something out that he actually started doing electronic music in 1956 with hmm. uh, with something called Song of the Youths. You sang the youngling. The, well, I think that would probably be it. So I, yeah. I'm afraid I'm not. I'm, I'm. I guess Rich, you studied music, did you not? Yes, I did. Would it, and PJ as well. <laughs> would you have? Uh, would you? Mm-hmm. You probably. Yeah, had a, a brief, you know, um, module about Stockhausen. I would have sure at one point, or was uh, was he overlooked? He was overlooked. Oh, we very we very cursorily, you know, stepped across modern aleatoric and electronic music, and uh, Stockhausen was simply mentioned in my music history modules. Um, I've listened to a few Stockhausen pieces. And uh, like Dave said, he writes a lovely tune. So consequently, none of the melodies have stuck. And I don't know that I would be able to identify one if, if it was played for me and, and I was asked who was the composer. I guess, um, you know, he, he is attributed with sort of inspiring the Beatles, Kraft, lots of kind of very big acts, you know, who've taken his kind of at least his um, his theories and his approaches and his methods perhaps, you know, out to heart, which seems to be what he's been Rich, is there something you've uh, you've spent any time on? Well, it didn't come up in college at the, during the music education part, um, but I did listen to a little bit of what he did on my own, and it in my uh, spectrum of understanding, it fell into a broad range of music concrete type um, developing electronic music techniques era, where he was one of a number of people making this sort of blip and screech kind of music with tape manipulation and quite often without even uh, electronic sound sources, just manipulation of real sources and 
He's, he's remembered as a pioneer of electronic music where he wrote a lot of stuff that wasn't electronic. And I, if I can, there's a piece he wrote called Stimmung, S-T-I-M-M-U-N-G, which is like a chant thing, which is almost like, almost like Reich in certain respects, mm. which is worth, if, rather than all the blippy bloppy stuff, which um, was pioneering, but we studied some of this when I was doing my electronic uh, music course at um, York. And generally, the, you know, there was a performer who'd get 25 minutes out of a flute but wouldn't play the flute in any way that was any way conventional, which is kind of good for about five minutes, but not 25 minutes. Yes. And then there'd be a piano piece which involved a guy putting sort of heavyweight gloves on and bashing the piano and doing glissandos up and down the keyboards. And again, that went on for about 20 minutes, which is quite good for, for a few minutes, but then, you know, you've got to stop. Um, I, I was told by one of the composers on the course, you know, the guy to writing contemporary music is whatever you come up with, halve it and take off a bit. Which was a good, um, which is something that I think Stockhausen should have taken more notice of. But the only other thing I was going to say was the helicopter quartet is brilliant. I've got a recording of it. It lasts about uh, 35 minutes. And you actually, you know, it's the sound of helicopters taking off mixed with the sounds of the strings. And the string players, they try to emulate, they try and pick sounds out of the noise of the blades. And they try and emulate the sounds of the helicopters with their with their um, the string instruments. And when you've had a few drinks or a couple of puffs on a strong cigarette, it's a very interesting experience. It's very, it's very trippy. You know, it's really kind of almost... almost this is the, begin- the, the, the beginning when the turbines begin, uh, start yeah. up. It's really a wild sound. Yeah, it's really quite exciting. You know, mm, it's like, yeah. it's like sort of moments of Pink Floyd, it really is. Anyway, I have to go, but I do hear that um, Stockhausen's um, funeral march is going to be played on the three radios and a signal generator. Hey. See you soon. All right. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Okay. Thanks, Dave, very much. Cheers. But anyway, uh, yeah, Stockhausen's dead. Um, there are lots of obituaries, and presumably there'll be some sort of retrospectives. But I think, you know, because I was thinking, oh, yeah, this would give me a really good reason to actually go and listen to some, because I really didn't know about it. And I'd heard, you know, that obviously that he's got an enormous body of work. And I went and listened to a couple of things. And I think there's probably a few that really kind of, you know, you, you can connect with. I don't think you can connect with all of his. I think words like challenging and uh, as um, the Music Thing Blogspot guy said, not good for parties is probably quite good appropriate. You, you know, Nick, what what uh, struck me is what Rich said earlier about Stockhausen being part of Music Concrete. And I think part of part of the appreciation of listening to it is knowing the process and knowing the source of, of the sound that you're hearing, because then it you know, there's sort of an aha moment. I remember in school, we did listen to a composer who was composing back in the 1940s named Messiaen, and he was part of the initial music concrete scene. And he did a piece that sounded not dissimilar to what you played of Stockhausen, where it was a lot of blips and screeches and strange electronic sounding noises. And then we were told that it was made entirely with field recordings of uh, of birds. And that Squeezed made mice. you kind of sit back yeah exactly and that made you kind of sit back and go wow okay so you can clever manipulate these sounds and do you know clever things with them on tape and i mean obviously that's uh old news to anybody who owns a sampler yeah well i suppose the thing is also about this stuff i mean it's kind of like contemporary art isn't it really i mean in a lot of ways it's sort of challenging our conceptions of what is the norm and he's been doing that for a very long time and even now you know these old pieces they still kind of they are challenging listening and i suppose that's what they were for Right. There were constructions, and it was about the process, and quite a lot of art across the middle of the 1900s yeah. was involving the importance of the process in the result. In other words, the entire thing wasn't so result-driven as, as things began to become, in my view, more pro- or as much process-driven. 
And so this stuff and a lot of music concrete to me represents that sort of movement to some extent. Dave, you've been very quiet. I know you studied music as well. Did you have um, a, a Stockhausen module? Uh, no, but I've been quite fascinated by him. I listened to, a, I think it was a radio broadcast years ago where he was critiquing you know, contemporary artist work. Uh, in fact, one of them was a mate of our scanner. And I think it was Aphex Twin and stuff like that. And one thing I found really fascinating is that with all of them, he suggested that they give up repetition. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was kind of intriguing. Makes but, it yeah, no, I mean, work. from a personal point of view, flip it on 45 and I might be able to dance to it. Yeah. <laughs> The unmistakable sound of Philip Glass there. God, I sound a bit like a Radio 2 DJ there. Um, Philip Glass, um, you know, who uh, came became sort of massively sort of famous in the, well, I suppose in the late 80s, early 90s with his, uh, I can never pronounce the name of the film, but the film that everybody Carriana used to... Scotty, yeah, that's the one. Uh, with his very long piece, an amazing kind of uh, pioneer of systems music. But apparently that piece there was actually one of a series of four short animation accompaniments he did for Sesame Street in 1979, which um, just struck me as a as a kind of bizarre twist, because as they say, this was on uh, Synthtopia, which is a new resource I've just found. Synthtopia.com, great. Lots of really interesting things. Um, They say, ironically, the Sesame Street pieces aren't that far off from Einstein on the Beach and other stuff that he was doing that was scandalising audiences at the time, and obviously this was for children. And and it just got me thinking of all these sort of unlikely musical um, guests and contributors to um, Sesame Street. And before I wrote this topic, um, I I was driving to work the other day and I was listening to Nile Rogers on uh, Radio 5 Live. He was being interviewed. And uh, he apparently used to be in the Sesame Street house band. What a oh. connection. Yes, I did. So it's tough. Um, in, in the 70s, Sesame Street was a very important educational, children's educational medium. And it was a Amen. very uh, forward-looking sort of adventurous and progressive thing for them to have Philip Glass prepare videos to his, his own unusual style of music. I became aware of Philip Glass in the early 70s at first, and it was this sort of stuff was mostly rendered in small quartets of guys with Farfisa organs and stuff. And, um, but it was still the same style of pulsing music with gradual changes from sort of cellular music where you've got these two or four bar cells that slowly evolve. Uh, Steve Reich plays in this arena as well sometimes. And uh, I wasn't surprised at all to see these videos because, and or any of those other large celebrities. Even now, you see guys from recent uh, media, like they had, uh, who was it, Chris Maloney from Law and Order was uh, in one of them, you know. And uh, it's not surprising here in terms of the way it matched, the way Sesame Street played in our culture. It's sure. not surprising. Did anyone get to see any of that? There's some classics on there. Stevie Wonder was on there. Um, obviously, that's my favorite. Yeah, oh. that's a great one. He's uh, he sings Superstition, doesn't he? And uh, various other people. Dave, anyone you saw on there that you kind of um, was a defining moment for you? Herbie Hancock was on it. Wasn't yeah, he? doing the Fairlight yeah. years ago. Yeah, he was it's... demonstrating the sort of sampler, wasn't he? There's all these clips. There's tons of clips on YouTube, but it didn't seem to be done in a kind of crassly promotional way like it is you know a lot of ways now you know it's 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 kind of yes i want to talk about my new book or my new album whatever it was much more 
sort of general. It didn't seem to be tied with releases of, of stuff, did it? It wasn't like for promo. I mean, they came on that program like it was an honor to be there, didn't they? Not yeah. like, hey, hey, look at Right, me, because, uh, because of that educational importance that it had mm. in the culture. Because there weren't a lot. That was the most successful educational children's area that had been at that point. Yeah, and I, I grew up on it. I mean, I grew up in the 70s. So by the time I was two years old, I could count to 20 in Spanish. I mean, that's... That's cool. how important Sesame Street was in 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 our culture. I yeah. mean, it it was it was teaching you know kids to be bilingual, teaching kids phonics, and they did a fantastic job of taking what was the current popular um, you know st- current popular styles of music uh, cross genre and working them into the show and working them into such creative um, you know teaching tools mm. for education tools for kids. Not not only just bringing people you know on the show like such as Philip Glass and Stevie Wonder and and others Herbie Hancock, but also just sort of working in the styles of several genres of music into the into the general programming on the show. I thought they did a fantastic job. This this sort of threw up another sort of uh, thread of of thought when I was looking at the the topics, and um, it just you know I don't know if anybody's. You know, promotion is one of the things that is is part of what we do when we're in as performing musicians, and um, often you're put in inappropriate televisual um, situations where you're there promoting your record or whatever. And uh, I just wondered if anyone had found themselves in any kind of surreal um, moments with, like that. I remember my I'll I'll start with mine, and uh, we were promoting a record we do with uh, Sharon Red, who's uh, sadly passed away. Uh, called Can You Handle It? And we were touring Europe doing our sort of promo tour. And we went to uh, Finland and they flew us up, I forget the name of the place, to this sort of distant town where there happened to be the national radio, uh, uh, TV studio. And we were sort of sitting around waiting until we were going to be on. And um, it was a very unusual format show. It was like a big variety show, I think, of some something like that. And then we we kept getting put back and put back and we were just sort of hanging about. And eventually the they um they wheeled out. I don't know if any. This is probably not going to translate very well to our U.S. listeners, but there's a show called Bullseye, which is uh, a darts themed quiz show. So we put it that way. And they had a segment. They'd obviously Bullseye had frag- had, had, had uh, franchised Bullseye in its form with the little bully. You know, with the the, the mug with Bullseye written because Bullseye is a character. He's a kind of um, a comedy bull with a stripy shirt and. <laughs> As we were waiting to go on, this person just sort of strolled past us with his tray full of bullseye memorabilia and kind of darts and, you know, a, a tankard stuffed with um, whatever the currency was there at the time and uh, went on and they did a bullseye section. And it was just really surreal. And perhaps it's not that interesting, but it, I think, Dave, you, I can hear by your laughter, you can understand what a strange sensation that might have been. I just wondered if anybody else had any kind of similar kind of, you know, having to having had conversations with puppets or whatever in the name of uh, promotion i once shared a stage with miss piggy wow. now that would be an honor no was. doubt i was thrilled um we uh do a yearly uh uh gala for niles foundation called the we are family foundation and at one of them uh the henson people were well in attendance and there were people running around with various puppets doing various characters uh, some of them extremely famous, the people who developed these characters, and um, and some of whom I was thrilled and honored to meet. 
and then at one point I befriended one of them and uh, he asked me if it was okay if he shared some of the stage with me. I said, absolutely, come on up whenever you want. And at one point I'm playing a chic number and I turned to my right and there's Miss Piggy face to face. It was it was shocking and fun and <laughs> cool and there are pictures of this. And, uh, <laughs> Brilliant. So, I mean, I reckon that Britain is the only country, uh, maybe not the only one, but certainly one where this happens, where puppets and things like that get to number one over and above, you know, much more uh, deserving records, don't they? I mean, we get all sorts of weird stuff at number one. Or Mr. Blobby, he had a number yeah. one, didn't he? I, I mean, think where, it must happen in the States. Where else in the world it, does this happen? It does happens it everywhere. It does, it's, just, we, it's just localised, isn't it? They're not, they don't become international stars. I mean, the Muppets at least are international stars. I mean, various other puppets, you know, and kind of TV characters are localised, so we're not going to hear about them happening in America. I mean, it must happen in America as well. You get kind of novelty records in the same way. Do you? I don't know. There's a big silence. On the order of novelty records, I've made one with Tiny Tim. Oh, wow. I worked with ukulele-wielding Tiny Tim once and uh, made a record with him and uh, the poor man who's no longer with us. And uh, the last time I saw him, he ran up to me to show me his new CD, the uh, lead song of which was a cover of ACDC's Highway to Hell. Cool. (laughs) I heard that record. That was... Wow, <laughs> Tiny Tim. See, there we go. The Tiny Tim doesn't mean anything to me because uh, I we are presumably in the UK just haven't heard of him because it's a kind of tiptoe through the tulips was uh, huge oh, in, in the what late sixties, I suppose. Uh, okay. And he had this had this huge high profile media wedding on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show to this woman called Miss Vicky. It was like all this big pop culture stuff here in America at the time, and uh, and he was. This interesting fellow who sang in a falsetto kind of soprano voice with a ukulele who would sing quite often very old songs. And he was, in fact, a historian of music, I would say popular music between like 1920 and 1940. Like he knew all about all the megaphone singers and all of their songs and their hits and the progression of how it happened. And he could describe it to you in the same excruciating detail that we could go through the history of analog synthesis. Well, well, and cool. he came up in the same in the same folk underground scene that Bob Dylan did in in the early nineteen yep. sixties. And Dylan writes about him in his book Chronicles, and in, in a he very does. Fast it's a great, great great story. Yeah. <laughs> God, blimey! Worked with Dylan too, you know. But never mind. <laughs> I got a good Dylan synthesis story though for some time. Oh, you like me tell it now? Yeah, go go on. All right, uh, we're, we're making a record together in nineteen ninety six for a movie called Feeling Minnesota. Uh, which starred, I believe, Keanu Reeves. Uh, yeah, also tangentially related, related to PJ's uh, home dwelling. Well, and, and my, uh, my roommate worked on the production of that film, actually, at the time. All right. Well, yep. we were doing a cover of Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire. but uh, And uh, the rhythm section for this record, actually, was the original Sheik rhythm. Well, it was Niall and Bernard, Omar Hakim, and myself. And uh, so not having Niall and Bernard was significant because uh, it was one of the last records Bernard Edwards made. Sure. Anyway, um, uh, so I had stuff set up around the studio, and Bob was a very interesting character, and he would never come in the control room. There was a synthesizer out in the middle of the studio that I had just set up there in case I needed to make a sound that wasn't obvious amongst the acoustic instruments in the room. There just should be one there. And it was on a stand, and I see Bob's kind of standing in front of it, scratching his chin and looking down at the display. Um, So I walk over. And I say to him, Bob, is there anything I can get for you? Any sound you want to hear? You know, something I can help you to get. And he, he turns to me with this sort of far off wistful look in his eye and says, can you make it sound like trees? 
and I said, uh, you mean like you know, wooden sounds, sounds that sound like, well, yeah, yeah, like with trees, you know, I said, okay, yeah, so I put up, you know, I put up a bass kalimba, I put up marimba sounds, I put up, you know, things that whistled, I put up, you know, I did what I could. He seemed satisfied with my attempt. And did it get used? I'm quite sure it didn't. No, this was just our sort of random <laughs> moment out in the studio. It had nothing to do with the actual making of that song. It was just, it a was just <laughs> something that occurred between us during the session. <laughs> Excellent. And, and for the synth spotters out there, see if you got, that sounded like you might have been talking about a DX7 to me. Nope. <laughs> no? It was not a DX7. What was uh, it then? It was 1996. Ah, okay. Um, he's an illustrative cat. You read that book and you can sort of tell that that's who Oh, he is. that's true. That's true. It's very I mean, he strapped on Niles alembic baritone guitar and notably one day said this guitar sounds like the earth and because uh, it's a very wonderful sounding guitar but he's just got a very illustrative way of talking and he's a very interesting personality and uh was fascinating to work with and to listen to some of the most exciting moments i can recall are listening to him warming up solo on an acoustic guitar singing the song and accompanying himself and all of a sudden you sound like you're at newport in 1963 it just it's that same guy it was remarkable. Oh, well, cool. Thanks for that, Rich. Thank you very much. Um, Use what you can. <laughs> I will, I will, I will. That's it. It ran out there because um, I couldn't find the CD with it on. And um, uh, that was a clip that I got from somewhere else. And um, that's all you're allowed to preview. <laughs> so, <laughs> so sorry about that. But that was uh, a bit of um, the Vangelis. It's actually the Vangelis, the beginning of the Blade Runner theme. And that's the bit where Deckard, uh, who's played by Harrison Ford, is uh, looking at the photograph in the uh, in his gizmo, which is one of the sort of first gizmo moments of the movie. And uh, he's trying to he's he's just seeing um, what was going on at the scene of a crime, I think it was, if I remember correctly. Great film. I love Blade Runner. I uh, love, love the whole Vangelis thing. I'm a big fan of that uh, soundtrack. And uh, <clears throat> there's a new 25-year... In fact, must have been released the same year as Thriller then, because there's a 25-year anniversary version of it, which is, features three CDs. CD1, which is the original unremastered soundtrack, as it first appeared in 1994, uh, which was 12 years after the film was released. The second CD contains all the remaining music from the film that didn't appear on the original soundtrack. And the third and final disc will be, um, it contains an entire album of new loony written material written um, by Vangelis to mark the 25th anniversary of Blade Runner. And guess what? It's £12.98 from Amazon for three disc set. I mean, can you believe that? Wow. Wow. Oh, that's good. I like the way that on that uh, little clip there, even the, um, uh, we know that Vangelis is a big fan of very long reverbs and all the sound effects, which are of the the kind of gizmo in the room that are presumably, um, you know, on the set or whatever, even they've got like 12 seconds of reverb on them. I just think it's kind of a nice, uh, it's a very spacey and trippy sort of sound. But I'm a big fan of that soundtrack. Rich? Completely passed me by culturally. Oh, that's interesting. Vangelis didn't, but the movie did. PJ? I was, uh, I was eight years old when Blade Runner came out, and I loved that movie. Yeah. I've seen it, I've seen it you know, 20 times. <laughs> I love it, and I love the soundtrack. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of it. I mean, it is really sort of defining Vangelis, I think, isn't it, as well? It's got all of those beautiful, brassy CS80s and all of uh, that of kind course. of classic Vangelis stuff. 
Mark Tindley, is he, are you a Vangelis guy? I can't kind of picture you as perhaps one, but... Um... No, not really. I mean, my only experience with Blade Runner was probably too complicated to even go into, actually. It was one of those films like- that uh, when, back in, you know, back when you, one perhaps used to do lots of things one shouldn't, you used to go to that film under the influence of things that one shouldn't, <laughs> I seem to remember. <laughs> you yeah, suggested exactly. Mark did that? Apparently not. Uh, well, I, I can't comment. <laughs> Dave Spears, say something nice. Brilliant film, oh. absolutely awesome film. Yeah, yeah. no, the uh, new the because they're just releasing the DVD director's cut over here, aren't they? And that's kind of top of my wish list this Christmas. I think I've seen it in all versions, and uh, yeah, the music I thought was pretty interesting. There, there was a problem, wasn't there? That they didn't release it at first, and I remember. Um, do you remember that band Morrissey Mullen? No. They ended up doing their own. They were kind of sort of jazz funk. In fact, he played the sax on the kind of main Blade Runner theme. And uh, he did his own kind of version of it and released it as a single, which I thought was particularly uh, weird and pretty bizarre. But I can't think of Vangelis without recounting a story from Chris, who was working with John Anderson in the south of France. And the phone goes and John says, can you pick it up? And Chris picks it up and is John there? Yeah, hang on, who's calling? And Chris then says, yeah, hang on a couple of seconds. And he calls out to John. He says, John, Frank's on the phone. So he says, Frank who? He says, I don't know, Frank Ellis. (laughs) (laughs) So every one of our kind of Vangelis sounds on our synths are actually called Frank Ellis. Ah, okay. (laughs) Excellent. He just, he hit it. He hit it big, I think, with that. I mean, a lot of his stuff before is kind of like, uh, yeah, whatever. But I think with that film, it was just the kind of collision of all of those elements, wasn't it? Chariots of Fire. That, that oh, yeah, I suppose yeah. so, yeah. yeah. That was apparently Chariots of Fire, because I did a, a, a little piece on Vangelis. We did a, a kind of artist profile. We did a few, and one of them was on Vangelis, and I did a bit of research for it. Apparently, he improvised the entire score on piano <laughs> while he watched the film and then just filled it all in. And then just kind of fleshed out afterwards. And uh, I used to, uh, I don't know if I've told this story before, I probably have, but I'm getting old, so I'm allowed to repeat myself. Um, I used to work with a a girl called Raina Shine, um, who was uh, an engineer, and she worked for Van Gogh's for a long time. She told me the story that um, he used to have uh, one of those Yamaha, oh, what were the the super-duper reverbs? Rev 1, which was kind of like Mm. a spaceship control thing, and it came in a sort of 18U rack mount as well or something or whatever it was and apparently used to just have nine seconds of reverb on everything and just in various degrees and that was just on the whole lot of everything all the time (laughs) and that was kind of the sound Frank Ellis sound (laughs) (laughs) right guys I think um, well Frank Ellis Blade Runner um, you can get it um, from Amazon Uh, I did have a look on Amazon.com I I don't think you can get it there at the moment but if maybe they'll have them in stock just in time for Christmas for the the man or woman in your life that uh, appreciates such ambient technical works so um, thank you very much for joining us this week Uh, it's been a blast Uh, once again um, thank you very much Dave Spears from g4software.com Thank you. And Mr. Mark Tinley, um, I think um, you've done very well. I, I'm, I'm glad you managed to be with us for most of the time. I've survived, haven't I? You I've have. got through all of it. Yeah, well done. Well, thank you very much for coming, Mark. <laughs> okay, you're welcome. And uh, Mr. Rich Hilton from Connecticut, thank you for joining us. Lovely to be with you fellows again. Uh, that's uh, myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. And uh, Mr. PJ Tracy 
from Minneapolis. Thank you very much for getting up early and um, braving the cold, dark weather, as it must be. And uh, I hope you get some nice warm slippers for next time. <laughs> it's an honor. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure every week. And I appreciate you uh, inviting me into your company. Oh, PJ, that's very gracious of you. Thank you very much. Um, I think probably less, next week's going to be the last one before Christmas because um, we should stop at some point and um, take a break. So, And remember, folks, comments are always welcome. We'll be happy to read them out or play them or however they arrive. Uh, you can email them at, to sonictalk at sonicstate.com or you can just take words or MP3s. Or if you've got Skype, uh, you can call us on Sonic Talk, the handle Sonic Talk. We've got an answer phone there. Just leave us a message. Uh, we've got Skype in numbers in the US for that. Uh, so dial 312-376-8089 if you're inside the US. Or if the UK's closer or you're in the UK, 0207-870-8616. Remember to dial your country code before those if you're outside either of those countries. That's US telephone number 312-376-8089. UK 0207-870-8616. Thanks for listening. Sonic. States. Not home.